Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. Today, on October 10th, 2022, we're going to be talking about the secret city. Which city is the secret city, you may ask, and why is it the secret city? Well, it's Washington, D.C. Um, in this book about homosexuality, secrecy, national security, and oppression all blended into one, James Kirchick, who I'm excited to have on the podcast today, is studying this previously unstudied section of American history. And we're introduced to so many individuals that you've probably never heard of, even though they were at the heart of American policy, like foreign policy specifically, and they were serving their country while they were living double lives. It's something that I can't even imagine as a 19-year-old American, but this happened. Um, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Juliet. So before we get started, What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Um, Related to my book, I'm assuming, or you just think in general, Generally, are you asking? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to try to tie it to my book because that's why I'm here, right? It's from my book. Awesome. Um, And I think it might actually be true uh, in general, which is that really up until quite recently, there was no worse thing you could be in American politics. And I would actually say maybe even in America than a homosexual and to be gay. And that might seem really crazy for people of your generation, because if the polls are to to be believed, uh, (laughs) members of your generation proclaim themselves to be LGBT at twice the rate, uh, twice the incidence level than people of my generation, which are millennials, And being gay or queer, I guess, would be the term that people your age would use, um, is not not only considered a a neutral category, like being left-handed or having a particular eye color. It's almost, I think, seen as a a positive trait at this point, actually. And I think there are lots of people who adopt the identity of queer, even though they are not homosexual. In fact, the word homosexual is probably one that people of your generation aren't familiar with, by which I mean same-sex attraction. Um, And this same-sex attraction was uh, universally condemned within American society by all of our religious denominations, the medical establishment, certainly the political establishment. It was illegal in this country to be gay. Um, Culturally, it was ridiculed, um, and gay people were treated as deviants. That was actually the term that was used to describe gay people. Uh, certainly the word gay was not used until really the late 1960s, early 1970s. They would use the term sexual deviance. Um, so this is really, I think, the overriding message of my book. And it is something that I think people of your generation uh, should understand. And it's something that we overwhelmingly don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, like you're the first to write this sort of compiled history of specifically that. And it's, I don't know, it was just crazy to learn about because it overlaps in a way that really makes sense with our, like, 
other history, the other history being the one that's told or has been told up to this point. Um, and so it was kind of shocking for me to realize, like, wow, there was a point. First, every time I read Sexual Deviant, I, it, it, I had a reaction to it because I was like, what? Like, sometimes I was like, what is that? Like, what do you mean? Sometimes I was like, why would they say? Like, I don't know. It it does a good job of, like, enforcing, restating the impact that that sort of thing had on other people. Like, I can't even understand. But I don't know. It was just very well written. Um, so let's get into that. Um, how did you come to write this book? And why did you want to write mm. it? Well, I'd say there are two sort of answers to that question. Um, the first has to do with my academic background. Uh, I, I was very, I, I am, and I and I have been very interested in the Cold War and sort of all aspects of the Cold War, intellectually, uh, kind of domestic American Cold War, the rise of McCarthyism, the neoconservative movement. Um, interested in sort of the Cold War overseas, and you know, in the in the Third World, the battle between the Soviet Union and the United States, and its its proxy wars in Latin America and Africa. I wrote my senior thesis on the Liberal Party of South Africa, which was an anti-communist, anti-apartheid political party um, in in South in South Africa. Uh, espionage fiction, uh, I've I've always been interested in, and espionage movies. And just sort of the ideological battle uh, between East and West that really shaped the second half of the 20th century. And it was at Yale that I studied under uh, Professor John Lewis Gaddis, who's the Dean of Cold War History in the United States. He's the biographer of, of George Kennan, the great Cold War strategist. And I was taking a seminar that Professor Gaddis was teaching on the art of writing biography, uh, where the final paper for our class was a a biography that we had to write on a figure living or dead uh, whose papers were at Yale. And I was lucky in that a man named Larry Kramer had just donated his papers to Yale. Uh, Larry was a very famous, controversial, uh, gay activist, uh, playwright, a novelist. He was also a very influential AIDS activist. He founded the organization Gay Men's Health Crisis in his living room in New York City in the fall of 1982, which was the first, you know, AIDS organization uh, devoted to to to, uh, to to combating this very mysterious disease that just suddenly appeared among among gay men in the summer of 1981. Um, and Larry uh, was still alive at the time, and I got to know him, and I interviewed him, and I worked in and I worked in his in his papers. And this was sort of, I would say, a merging of these two interests of mine, the kind of, as I say, the open history, right, of the open city, the, the, the history of the Cold War that we all know or that we all can read about in books. And then the secret history, which is the history of gay people in this country, which has always been um, in the 20th century, certainly was, was kept hidden by many people. Uh, mainstream historians did not want to write about it. Journalists would often write about it, you know, in a kind of roundabout way. Um, gay people, when they were alive, um, would often hide this aspect of their lives, gay public figures. Uh, and if they did keep diaries about it, then often their families would, upon their death, would destroy them because it was considered so shameful. 
Um, and then so these, these were sort of two interests of mine, uh, Cold War history and gay history. And then after college, I moved to Washington and I was realizing that this was a city that was uh, that, that runs on secrets. So certainly in the 20th century, secrets were a very important part of, of Washington. They were a form of currency, a form of power. Uh, and I was, I was covering national security and I realized that, you know, the more secrets, the more secrets you had, you have access to, the more power you have. Because secrets are a form of power. Secrets can be used to advance yourself. They can be used to hurt other people, to take down other people. That's what the whole notion of the leak is, right? The leak. Uh, every day there are leaks in Washington and they are dispensed by people who have access to secrets. And as a journalist, you're constantly trying to get access to those secrets so you can be the one who breaks the story. And so I realized that uh, there was no more powerful secret in Washington, in American politics. Nothing that could more easily destroy a political career than the accusation that someone was gay. And so this seems like a really compelling way or method of analyzing or sort of revisiting American history and sort of beginning around World War II. I mean, the book begins really in the, with the New Deal, with, with FDR. And just going through this entire period of history from World War II until the end of the Cold War, looking at every president, every administration, every sort of major phenomena from the Whitaker Chambers Alger Hiss case and the rise of McCarthyism through to the founding of the CIA and the kind of bureaucratic battle with the FBI, uh, the court of Camelot, Jack and Jackie Kennedy, uh, Lyndon John. Johnson and his close aides, Richard Nixon's paranoia, um, the rise of uh, the, the African-American civil rights movement, uh, and then the Reagans uh, and Reagan's America and the AIDS crisis. And then just sort of revisiting all these episodes and personalities and characters and events and trying to explore how they were impacted by this fear of homosexuality. And I found that it was a very profound impact. It wasn't a minor one. Um, you really can't understand this period of American history, I believe, without understanding the role that homosexuality played in all these events and with all these individuals. Well, you know what else is crazy? I didn't learn about the Cold War in high school or middle school or elementary school. I didn't learn about yeah. it until, well, I mean, I just have picked up parts of it at different points. Um, but really, like, your book taught me a lot about the Cold War, which is interesting. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just in that weird gap where we're too close to the Cold War for it to be taught. But, like, we're also—we weren't alive. Um, mm -hmm. So no, it, was you kind of, it was kind of crazy to, like, learn about all of that. Um, also, like, I thought McCarthy was president— like that's I thought that's why McCarthyism was a thing. I was like, oh, he must have been president if there's a thing named after him. Um, it's kind of mm -hmm. a weird thing for me to conflate. I don't know. Um, but wow, that's I mean, it, great book, great um, connection of ideas. It seems so obvious now that you've laid it all out, but it probably wasn't um, at the time. <laughs> but 
I'm glad. I'm glad that you told this story. No, it wasn't. It was something. It was something. I yeah. No, th- uh, yeah. Thank you. And it, uh, I didn't really have this thesis until I started working on it. You know, I knew I wanted to write this book, uh, and I knew that there were lots of fascinating stories to be uncovered and told, and that it would make a great sort of narrative uh, history book. But in terms of you know these conclusions that I've reached, we're not. Uh, I didn't really reach them until the end of the kind of research process until I started writing. And I, I got so excited every time George Kennan was mentioned because I developed such a crush on him this summer. We did a I took a class okay. on on um, U.S. Russia relations like Reagan to now. So like post-Cold War mostly. And I just mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. Like I read one of his his works like i i don't know how how deep this crush was but i was just excited i was like wow this is these people were real also can we call them characters if they were real people do you just call them characters uh, uh yes you can say that yeah 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 absolutely yes. okay cool that that's a point and the con if you're if you're speaking about the context of a book in which they appear i think that's fair to say okay nice clarification what's super fascinating is the parallel between the secrecy that homosexuals had to have about their private lives and national secrecy, like national secrets, Mm. all of that stuff. And you go into a lot of detail and you tell the story of the evolution of how these secrets were viewed in Washington and the intersection between national security and the secret of being gay. Uh, Can you kind of talk about how that evolution occurred and how and why World War II especially was a turning point where homosexuality became kind of a national security threat. Sure. Yes, this concept of national security is not something that even existed in our country until World War II and really afterwards. I mean, the National Security Council uh, was not created until 1947. The Central Intelligence Agency was founded the same year. Um, the United States didn't have a civilian intelligence agency until World War II. It was called the Office of Strategic Services, which was the predecessor to the CIA, and that was founded by President Roosevelt in 1942. Um, so prior to that, the United States was you know, deeply isolationist, did not want to be involved in the world. That wasn't to say we weren't. We obviously had imperial adventures overseas, but the notion of being a kind of world-bestriding power with a with a global presence uh, was not something that was really um, in 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 the American consciousness of our leaders until World War II. Uh, there's actually an anecdote that I tell, a rather funny one that I came across in the diary of of F- FDR's naval aide John McCrae. He's walking down. This is sometime in the late 1930s, before the Second World War, and he's walking uh, past the Corcoran Gallery, which if any of your listeners are familiar with Washington, D.C. is an art gallery just across the street from the White House. And uh, he sees a white piece of paper flying through the air and he snatches it into his hand and it says confidential document from the State Department. Uh, so the, the State Department used to be in the building right next to the White House, the, um, which is currently the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. It used to be the office of uh, war state in the Navy. They were all housed in the same building. So that's how secrets were, were treated in Washington, that you could just have an 
you know, a confidential State Department document fly out an open window on a on a windy day. <laughs> and the war changes that. The war the war completely changes that. And with it, homosexuality becomes transformed because prior to the war, homosexuality it was certainly a sin. It was certainly illegal in every state. And it was uh, considered a medical condition by the medical establishment. I mean, gay people could be institutionalized, and many of them were. They could under, be forced to undergo lobotomies or castration and other sorts of chemical, chemical-based treatments to, to cure them, so to speak. But the war uh, transforms homosexuality into, into a national security threat because then uh, the fear is generated that because gay people have this deep, dark, awful secret, as I said, the worst possible thing that you could be, that they would go to any lengths to protect that secret, including if they happen to be a government employee in possession of, again, secret information, including perhaps giving away government secrets to adversarial foreign powers that, that blackmail them or that try to blackmail them. And so gay people are um, become widely feared as being potential uh, targets for, for blackmail. And that is when these these first sort of gay political government scandals occur. They all happen after World War II. Or during, I say, during World War, once after the Second World War begins. So let's talk about the Cold War. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. maybe not obviously to me because I was not taught about it in school or taught it in school. Um, the U.S. government really, really was obsessed with expelling communists, um, especially like early Cold War 40s and 50s. What I didn't realize Mm -hmm. and what I don't think a lot of like I don't most people probably don't know this, but homosexuality was conflated with communism. And I mean, as you mentioned earlier, oftentimes it was regarded as worse than communism in the middle of the Red Scare. So how did these two ideas get intertwined? So there are several factors. Um, there's this, there's the specific uh, example of the Alger Hiss Whitaker Chambers case, which I referred to earlier, which is the first real big, big spy drama of the American Cold War, and it involved uh, a former State Department, high-ranking State Department official named Alger Hiss, and a man who accused him of being a communist spy named Whitaker Chambers. Chambers at the time, he made these accusations in 1948, was a very well-known and well-regarded journalist at Time magazine. And he alleged that about 10 years earlier in the 1930s, that he and Hiss had been members of the same communist cell in Washington um, when uh, Chambers was working as a courier, he claimed, uh, basically taking stolen State Department documents that Alger Hiss gave him and sending them to Moscow. And these accusations were uh, explosive and riveting. It was the first um, uh, televised congressional hearing in the United States. It was before the House Un-American Activities Committee, which would become infamous. Um, And underlying this drama between these two men was this homoerotic um, component. Because Chambers had actually, at the same time that he was a member of the communist underground, he'd also lived a a gay life as well, uh, having sex with men. 
And this was rumored at the time, and he actually confirmed it in a, in a confidential interview to the FBI. He sort of warned them about this, that he had, that he had uh, lived a life as a homosexual and that the Algerist forces might try to use this at some point to discredit him. This never became public during the trial. It was too explosive. Uh, the his forces uh, considered it too risky to make the accusation public. But what they did was, is they sort of quietly spread the word, the rumor, that Whitaker Chambers was a spurned homosexual, that he had lusted after Alger Hiss, and that the reason he was making these accusations that Hiss was a communist was because he was bitter that Hiss had rejected him. And this, come, this comes up a lot when you read, it's sort of hinted at or, or inferred if you read some of the press coverage at the time. Um, you know, uh, there are references to this ghastly accusation, this, you know, this, this horrible, unspeakable slander that was leveled by the his forces against Whitaker Chambers. And he himself, in his great memoir, Witness, Chambers uh, alludes to it, but you know, you can't name it again because it's this terrible thing that can't be named. But this sort of begins um, to, to uh, associate in, in many prominent people's minds this association between treason, homosexuality, and communism. Uh, and then it gets a real boost uh, two years later in 1950 when Joe McCarthy makes his famous speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, he was speaking to the Republican Ladies Club. And he alleged that there were 205 members of the Communist Party working in the State Department, card-carrying members. And he claimed to have their names. He waved a list in his hand. Um, and this, this this sets the country afire. Uh, it becomes the biggest news story. It's on the front pages of every paper in the country. And a couple of weeks later, the Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, is summoned to Capitol Hill to testify about these charges. And he brings with him a deputy uh, under Secretary of State, John Puerafoy, who's being questioned about the supposed presence of you know, communists in the State Department. And he mentions in passing that 91 uh, homosexuals had actually been fired from the State Department in the previous three years. And this becomes a huge scandal. And in fact, a newspaper reporter would later write that of the tens of thousands of letters that Joe McCarthy received in the months following these, revela these revelations, that only 25% of the letters were primarily concerned with communists in the State Department, and that the vast majority were taken up with the threat Posed by sexual deviance. And there begins to um, sort of cohere in the public imagination the image of the homosexual villain. And he is a he's a communist, he's a homosexual, he's a sexual deviant. Um, both communists and homosexuals are secret people, they live in the shadows. They are subversive, right? The communists are politically subversive and homosexuals are sexually subversive. They're both, they're both basically, you know, against uh, American motherhood, the flag and apple pie. Um, and so these two groups of people become conflated. The communists are seen as homosexuals and homosexuals are seen as, as communists. 
There's another case that becomes public that also, I think, further cements this. Uh, it involves a man named Guy Burgess, who was a British diplomat and spy, uh, who was also working as a spy for the Soviets. He had been stationed in Washington in 1950 and 1951, and then he fled the country uh, for Moscow with another British diplomat, Donald McLean. And Burgess was gay. He was actually quite open about it for the time. And he was a communist. And sort of this singular figure of Guy Burgess became, um, he sort of added sustenance to this stereotype. So you have, you know, a couple of isolated cases, right, involving spies, communists, gays. Uh, you have McCarthy's allegations. You have the fact that uh, gay people had been in the State Department and a number of them had been expelled um, simply for being gay. And this is all happening at a time of great sort of moral panic in the United States during um, a, a Red Scare. Um, and so it, it's kind of a conflation of events and phenomena that collide into one another. And it just becomes a very dangerous time to be to be gay in Washington. So, yeah, what were the consequences of the mix of these ideas? Well, the most tangible one was the numbers of gay people or just people suspected of being gay who were expelled from the government or denied service in the government. Um, in April 1953, Dwight Eisenhower, the newly elected president, he signs an executive order. It's one of the first executive orders he signs uh, that prohibits gay people from working anywhere in the federal government. You have to understand the federal government at this time was huge. And it wasn't just the federal government that gay people were banned from working in. It was also federal contractors, any private business that, con that contracted with the federal government. And this is the Cold War, right? So you have these massive defense contractors, the United States. The United States federal government is, is growing at an enormous pace. We have the rise of the military industrial complex that, that Eisenhower would later condemn uh, in his farewell speech. And this entire bureaucratic edifice is, uh, at this point, um, you know, constitutionally opposed to hiring gay people. It's committed to rooting them out, investigating them, finding them, and expelling them. Uh, and it's estimated that seven to 10,000 gay people were fired in the 1950s alone. In uh, this policy, these policies that I write about in the book, they extended until 1975 in terms of the civil service, and then until 1995 in terms of security, any security clearances. So gay people could not have a job that required a security clearance, so they could be prohibited from having a job that required a security clearance until 1995. And they could be prohibited from working in the federal government until 1975. So this long outlasts the Red Scare. I mean, the Red Scare, you could say, really ends with Joan McCarthy's death in 1957. I would actually argue it ends a couple of years earlier because he's really with, with his censure at the end of 1954, right? So these policies were uh, longer lasting than the Red Scare. And I would argue that they were actually more damaging because unlike the Red Scare, which was at least based on a real genuine 
fear of communism. We were, we were right to be afraid of communism. We were right to oppose communism. <clears throat> it was an evil ideology that had an enormous amount of blood on its hands and still does. Uh, it was obviously exaggerated by the likes of McCarthy and uh, ind innocent individuals. Their lives were destroyed by these policies. Um, but it was at least based on a real fear. And as I mentioned earlier, there were actually a number of communists in the federal government. Alger Hiss was a communist. Uh, Whitaker Chambers was right about him. The Lavender Scare, which is what the purge of gay men and women is called, that was based on nothing. I mean, there was no uh, evidence at all that gay people posed a threat to the federal government, to national security. Um, there was not a single case of a gay person being blackmailed into revealing confidential information to a foreign power. Uh, so I would actually argue that the lavender scare was was worse. It was more egregious than the red scare. So wait, so why were there so many gays in the State Department specifically? Is that just because that's the focus? Well, of the I think. Book? Uh, um, no, they're actually. Well, look, I don't I don't have the statistics to prove this, but sort of anecdotally and from my research. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's fair to say it's fair to say that the State Department provided, particularly for gay men, because, look, if you were a woman, you were not going to get a job as a diplomat or as a high ranking official or an ambassador. They didn't women didn't start really achieving those sort getting those sorts of jobs in the State Department until the 19, I don't know, 60s or 70s. Right. So before World War Two and, and even after, if you were a gay man, then the State Department could be a pretty attractive career. I mean, let's think you can work overseas, uh, perhaps in countries that have more lenient attitudes towards or relaxed attitudes towards homosexuality. Uh, you can pretty much get away with being a bachelor without people be being suspicious, right? You're constantly moving from post to post overseas. It's difficult to have a wife and family. Um, so that was another reason why it could be attractive for gay men. And it was also an all-male environment. Um, so there were a number of pretty high-ranking gay men, actually, in the State Department before the war. And I write about some of them. Um, and they're able to sort of get away with it. It's not until really 1947 that the crackdown begins. Um, and the State Department has this rep. It, 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 it achieves a kind of cultural reputation as being a haven of homosexuals because uh, it is it is the uh, it is blamed as part of the McCarthyite charges, uh, the McCarthyite campaign. It's the State Department that is blamed for America um, sort of losing in the early years of the Cold War. Right. We lose uh, China to the communists. Eastern Europe is falling to Soviet control and influence. And McCarthy alleges the, the basis of McCarthyism is this belief that the American elite in the State Department, you know, consciously sold out America, that, that there were high class, well-educated uh, members of the elite who were traitors. It's not that these were um, forgivable mistakes or that the communists were more powerful. It's that there were traitors in, in high office. And part of this accusation is that they're weak. They're not strong. They're weak, effeminate men who 
you know, couldn't put up a fight against these, these muscular, masculine, tough communists. And so you have these epithets that are used to describe diplomats, that they're cookie pushers, uh, which is a term, right, that they're, they're kind of pushing cookies on a table uh, in, in, in their sort of diplomatic quarters. And so diplomacy gets conflated with effeminacy, and effeminacy is conflated with homosexuality. And so the State Department is seen as this repository of effet homosexuals. And there's a cartoon that is published in the summer of 1950 in the New Yorker magazine, by no means a right-wing publication. And it shows a man uh, applying for a job, and he's telling the other man at the, on the other side of the desk who's thinking of hiring him, he says, yes, it's true, sir, I was fired from the State Department, but only for incompetence. Right, so it, it, it's it's clearly understood in the American zeitgeist that the State Department at this point has basically become synonymous with homosexuality. And so I got the impression that gay women were not as affected as men were by the views of homosexuality, and I mean, it seems like it makes sense. Like women weren't working in the State Department as much. Is that? Do you think that that's the full explanation, or is there another reason why? Part of the reason, I mean, the, the other reason is that this was a patriarchal society, and men were considered more important than women were in every realm of life. And so therefore, male sexuality and all of its forms was considered more important than female sexuality, and therefore male homosexuality was considered a greater threat than female homosexuality, right? Because men are supposed to be leading our society. Uh, they're supposed to be the bosses. They are the homemaker, the, uh, the, the, the breadwinners. They're earning the money. They're leading our country. They're leading our businesses. They're leading our defense department, our state department, right? And so if they are homosexual and they are corrupted by these deviant practices, then it's just a greater problem. Uh, and this is not just unique in America. Um, you know, the Nazis did not outlaw female homosexuality. Uh, which is not to say that lesbians were not oppressed under Nazism, but not nearly in the same numbers, and they were not rooted out, and they were certainly not, you know, killed in the in the numbers that homosexual, that male homosexuals were in Nazi Germany. Uh, Great Britain never outlawed female homosexuality; it never outlawed lesbianism. Same-sex relations between women were never outlawed in the United Kingdom. They were outlawed in uh, um, among men. And it was ruthlessly enforced. I mean, many, many men, tens of thousands of men were, were imprisoned um, in the 20th century in Great Britain for homosexual offenses. And that, that didn't end until 1967. Um, and then furthermore, uh, male homosexuality um, was such that it often uh, was in conflict with the law, by which I mean, you know, if you were a gay man in the 1950s and you wanted to meet other gay men, you know, there was no grinder. There was no there weren't really many places that you could go other than kind of seedy bars or public restrooms and public parks. Uh, the practice of cruising. Right. Which, which means, you know, searching for other sexual partners in public places. This was this was fairly common uh, if you were a sexually active gay man. This is how you would meet other men like yourself. And that was very risky. Um, I mean, one of the, the prime cruising ground in Washington during the early years of the Cold War was Lafayette Square, which is the main uh, park right across the street from the White House, which I think says so much about 
my book, right? That you have the the main meeting the main meeting ground for these secret citizens was was the park directly across the street from the home of the most powerful man in the world. Um, and dating back to the late nineteenth century, there are police reports of them, you know, arresting men uh, seeking out. Uh, sexual encounters with one another at night in Lafayette Square. And so gay men were just coming into conflict with the police at a much, much higher rate than lesbians. Lesbians were not meeting each other in these ways. You know, lesbians were not searching for sex in public parks or public restrooms. That's just not, that's not how lesbians then or now, <laughs> that's, that's not how lesbians socialize. Um, so, you know, gay male socialization practices and sexual, um, uh, the kind of sexual ecology of the gay male in this period of time was such that he was coming, he was, he was at greater risk of, of running into the law. So I'm going to ask a really big question, but maybe a little bit more brief. I know it's going to be hard, but how did these changes in gay rights and the culture and the attitudes, how did that come about? Well, that's a, a a good question, and there's several answers to it. Um, I mean, the main again, this goes to the one of the overarching themes of the book, which is secrecy and its opposite, which is transparency. And so, as long as gay people were secret, as long as no one, knew, you know, as long as there were no openly gay people, as long as homosexuality homosexuality was just a sort of idea that existed in people's imaginations, then people could believe the most frightening, horrible things about gay people. They could believe, as, as I write in the book, that gay people were more predisposed to fascism and that the Nazis were, were a gay cabal. Uh, this was actually speculated upon at length in numerous government reports that I cite in the book. Or during the Cold War, they could believe that gays were communists. Uh, they could believe, as was alleged in 1967 by the district attorney in New Orleans, Jim Garrison, that the assassination of President Kennedy was organized by a right-wing gay cabal. This was actually the only the only man ever tried legally for the assassination of President Kennedy it was a gay man, a gay businessman named Clay Shaw, living in New Orleans, and his his prosecution, which was completely reckless and without basis forms the uh it, it inspired the movie jfk by oliver stone which was a multiple academy award-winning film so people could believe all sorts of nasty crazy conspiratorial nonsense about gay people as long as they were in the closet and then once gay people started coming out of the closet and because of the fact that gay people are randomly distributed across the population by which I mean there are poor gay people, there are rich gay people, there are white gay people, black ones, Asians, uh, rural, city. I mean, they come in all shapes and sizes in every sector of society. And once those, once gay people started coming out in appreciable numbers, simply by dint of you know biological fact, uh, everyone now in America knows a gay person. I think the latest Gallup poll or Pew show that 94% of Americans know someone who's gay. 50 years ago, that was not the case. 50 years ago, very few people could say that they knew a gay person. Of course, they did, but those gay people were not out. They were living secret lives. And so it required some very courageous people 
uh, in the 1950s and 60s to come out of the closet, to be the first, and to say that, you know, we're not sick as gay people. It's the society that says that we're sick that is sick. It is, it is the society that oppresses gay people and that condemns homosexuality, which is sick. And it took them a very long time and a lot of struggle and a lot of people suffered and died uh, and had their lives wasted and ruined because of these policies, because of the fear of homosexuality, homophobia. Um, a lot of people suffered to get to where we are today. And that's really what I try to show in the book. Um, speaking of right wing gay cabal that assassinates JFK. Um, so my mom had a book club with a few of her friends about your book and she let me attend. Yes. Um, and I got into a super interesting conversation. <laughs> with one of her Yeah, it, it was awesome. Um, I got into a super interesting conversation with one of her friends about the political affiliations of the gay community. Um, then and how it differs from now. I feel like usually there's kind of a stereotype, like, I don't know if I want to call it a stereotype. I don't know what I would call it. But there's this belief that, like, gay people are generally, like, on the left. Um, but she pointed out that a majority, it seemed, were on the right in your book. Is there kind of, like, I have a theory, kind of, um, but... I'm not the expert here. Do you have an idea as to why um, there was this shift or is was there really a shift? Um, well, it's hard to know statistically where gay people were in their political affiliations before the 1980s, really, because no one was polling on that question. Right. Mm -hmm. Very few uh you know, no, no, no one was 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 doing random samplings of, of gay people asking self-identified gay people, what is your political beliefs like they do for other groups, women, men, blacks, Jews, Italians. Right. Mm -hmm. That doesn't really start happening until the 80s. And that is also around the time that homosexuality becomes a partisan political issue. Really, before that time, I mean, really before the late 1970s. Um, homosexuality does not factor into politics beyond being a target of really everyone, Republicans and Democrats. They're all attacking gay people as national security threats uh, and basically a problem to be dealt with. The gay rights movement, as we understand it, the modern movement, really begins to take off in the 1970s, becomes professionalized. Um, and then you start seeing representatives in, in Congress. I mean, Bella Abzug, who's a famous feminist from New York, a congresswoman, she introduces the first gay rights bill. It's an anti-discrimination bill, I believe in 1974. And it's mostly Democrats and liberals who are supporting her, but there are also liberal Republicans who are supporting it as well. And you also have a couple of these, you know, conservative Republicans who um, believe in individual rights and personal privacy, and they might be willing to support measures like this. But there's a backlash to the gay rights movement that takes off in the late 1970s. And it's led by a woman named Anita Bryant, who is an evangelical Christian. Um, or uh, She's the orange juice spokeswoman for the Florida Citrus Commission. And she's also a gospel music singer. But she's also an evangelical Christian. And so this is the rise. So you have the, the rise of the gay rights is also simultaneous with this other movement, the rise of the evangelical Christians. 
And that really takes off around the late 1970s. And there are several issues that animate them. One is the desegregation of uh, schools in the South. And they start up all these sort of, they're called Christian academies that are really just ways of um, skirting the desegregation. They, they basically become all white schools. There's obviously the abortion decision in 1973, Roe versus Wade, but also the rise of the gay rights movements. And so in reaction to, to, to these liberalized and, and, and the rise of the feminist movement too, right? So in reaction to these liberal movements, these expressions of individual rights in various ways, you have a reaction in the form of the Christian right. Um, and they are they play a crucial role in helping Ronald Reagan get the presidency in 1980. Um, and this is when homosexuality becomes more of a partisan issue. This is when you see people lining up, right? Sort of if you're if you're liberal and a Democrat, you're more likely to support gay rights. And if you're a conservative or a Republican, you're more likely to oppose it. And that really begins in the 1980s. Before that, it's hard to know where gay people were politically. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly write about. I mean, I wouldn't want to leave readers with the impression that most gay people were right wing. I think I write about them more in the books because I find that to be um, sort of fascinating and more unexplored. Well, I find I find the tension of the gay conservative uh, more fascinating, right? Because there was there was more tension involved in being a gay Republican supporter or, or say, employee uh, advisor in the Reagan administration. Um, that's a really tense fraught existence as opposed to being, you know, a staffer for Ted Kennedy in the 1980s. That's not a very mm -hmm. dramatic life. Um, I find I find the stories that I tell of these men, and they're mostly men, these gay men who are sort of in the orbit of the Reagans. I just find that a fascinating um, story because here were here were men whose political convictions were at directly at odds with their private lives, with their with their um, with their identities as gay people, because you have uh, a, pre a presidential administration that is heavily indebted to evangelical Christians. Then you have the onset of the AIDS epi epidemic and the administration is doing its best to ignore it and not talk about it. And yet here you have these very powerful gay men who are close to the Reagans or working the administration or on the outside supporting the administration. And I felt, you know, exploring their dilemmas to be uh, as a, as, as a journal, um, that and as a historian, that interested me the most. Mm -hmm. So I have one more question for you. What is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on, and why? I I used to be, um, I would say, pretty much a hundred percent open borders guy, and I would say the past few years have forced me to reckon with my pro-immigration views. I'm still pro-immigration. I think immigrants are generally good. Uh, they're generally a net positive. But I would say that I've been somewhat chastened, perhaps, in my belief um, that immigration is an unmitigated good. And also my belief that, or my realization, perhaps, that immigration policy really needs to be tied to um, the democratic process. Uh, I think this kind of populist wave that we've been seeing across the Western world um, is largely driven by an aversion to mass immigration. And 
I think the reason we've had this backlash is that we haven't taken into consideration enough the views of the public and that immigration policy was something that was largely decided by elites without the consent of the public or without their input and without really caring what they thought about it. And it's come back to bite us in the form of Donald Trump being elected in 2016 and a lot of these nationalist um, authoritarian leaning leaders across the Western world. I think it's what brought Brexit. You look at Marine Le Pen in France, you look at Viktor Orban in Hungary, you look at the alternative for Deutschland party in Germany, um, the kind of Euroskeptic views in general within Europe. I think it's driven by a fear of mass immigration. And I think uh, I used to be more sanguine about the possibilities of mass immigration, and I've grown more, more uh, I don't know if I would say skeptical, but more open-minded to the other, to hearing the other side. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.